If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Exodus 11. Um, we're so thankful to Emmanuel Community Church. Um, a verse during the conference this year really struck, stuck out to me. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 10, and 11, um, Paul writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. And honestly, um, as we think about Emmanuel Community Church in New Orleans, we want to follow the example um, that they've set for us. Um, that Matthew, like I said, we stay at their house to 1 a.m. Um, we brought their kid back at like 1 a.m. one night. Um, so we are so thankful for them. Um, and we want to follow their example and just pass that along. Um, and so when we come to the Emmanuel Network Summit, when we come to Emmanuel Baptist, um, this is my third time to do this, it's kind of like meeting your in-laws. Because, I mean, we love Emmanuel Community Church, but they were kind of weird um, whenever we first got there. And so we came here the first time. And I was like, oh, that's why they do that. <laughs> like, that's why he calls me brethren. I'm a brother, or like beloved. Um, that's why wh wh one of the pastors at Emmanuel, um, I'm not going to throw him under the bus from the pulpit, um, but he like comes to my house. He's like, this is great hot water you've made as he drinks the coffee. Um, that at my house. Um, <laughs> I like Dunkin' Donuts, so don't give me a hard time. And so coming here, I get to see like how you've invested the gospel into them, how you've invested into them, and that's even, and how that's even shaped us. And so we thankful, thank you for your faithfulness in that. Um, first of all, before we get into Exodus, I just want you to know that this was not a setup. Like, no one made me preach 40 verses of Old Testament narrative. I did this to myself. Um, but if you know me, it's because I love stories. Uh, growing up as a kid in church, I never listened to the preaching. I just went from Judges to Second Kings, read it, and then restarted it. Like, that was what I loved. Um, and we've been going through Exodus at Harvest Church. And Exodus is a great story. But Exodus isn't just a great story, it is the salvation story of the scriptures. And what I mean by that is that the Old Testament writers never really get over the Exodus. They spend a large majority of the rest of the Old Testament calling Israel to be an Exodus-shaped people. Because the Exodus story is the only story in all of the law that Israel is explicitly told, tell this story to your kids. All the festivals that Israel celebrates, they annually reenact the Exodus. The writers of the Psalms, they can't get the Exodus out of their bones. And then the prophets, they view the return from Babylon as another Exodus. And so when we get to the New Testament, we should not be surprised at all to find that Jesus is an Exodus-shaped savior. So when Jesus is born, a tyrant grows, af grows afraid and slaughters a host of baby boys. His parents flee to where? Egypt. They come back to Canaan. When he begins his ministry, he passes through the waters of baptism 
and conquer Satan in his 40 days of wilderness temptations. Midway through his ministry, he goes up on a mountain to speak with God, only to reveal a white hot glory that equals that of the I am. And so as Jesus is talking with Moses and with Elijah, he refers to his own death and resurrection in the gospel of Luke as an exodus. And so all who are found in Jesus today are called to be an exodus-shaped people because exodus is the salvation story. It's the melody playing in the background of all the scriptures. And that means it's our story as we read it because we've passed through the waters of baptism into new life. We're freed from slavery to sin to serve the living God. And we're persevering through the wilderness right now. That's where we are, on the way to the promised land. And one day we will cross Jordan's stormy banks. And throughout history, from like Corey Tim Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, Christianity has been making Exodus-shaped people and they have been living Exodus-shaped lives. And so one of the ways that we're shaped, that one of the ways we're changed is through ritual through tradition, through liturgy, as we might say. Now, if you don't believe that like a culture and people can be changed through ritual, it's Mardi Gras season in New Orleans. If you want to know why there's a small crowd from New Orleans this year, it's because like Fat Tuesday is Tuesday and like all, all this is going on. Um, every year, someone's like, what's Mardi Gras like? And I open my mouth and words coming out, come out and then I realized that I sound like a dummy because it doesn't make any sense. So January 6th is King's Day or Epiphany. It's called that because it's the day that um, church calendar, we would celebrate the wise men going to see Jesus. But in New Orleans, King's Day is the first day of carnival season and it's the first day that king cakes are available. I mean, people literally start lining up at 5 a.m at places like Manny Randazzo's to get a king cake. Like we aren't looking for baby Jesus, we're looking for the baby in the king cake, which is supposed to be Jesus, but I don't know how many people are making that connection. <laughs> we don't get spring break at schools, we get Mardi Gras break. Parades start rolling on the night of January 6th, the first one in New Orleans does, and it will finally wrap up on Fat, on Fat Tuesday, the day before Lent starts. And I've grown to love these parades. Um, part of me was deeply saddened that I couldn't go to Iris and Tuck's two parades yesterday um, with some of our church members. But if we had gone, this is what would have happened. We, I would have dragged this large, brightly painted ladder with a wooden seat attached to the top of it, like a buckle and everything. I would have strapped it onto the back of my truck and we would have lugged it across the city to... St. Charles Ave. And Mary Margaret and I would have set up that ladder. We would have placed our adorable three-year-old son in the top, on the top of that ladder. I would have climbed up behind him. And then I would have, for the next like five hours, begged people, costumed people on a brightly painted trailer to throw plastic beads and the most janky toys you can imagine to me, at me. I want them to hit me, right? I'm just trying to keep my son safe, trying to like avoid a concussion and all of this. And every parade kind of has their thing. So like Tux, 
Um, this is one of my favorite things. They throw out neon rolls of biodegradable single-ply toilet paper. <laughs> and so if you catch one of these rolls of toilet paper, you're, like, what you're supposed to do immediately is like open that thing and throw it as high as you can over these beautiful live oaks that sit over St. Charles Avenue. Sometimes I believe that I live in an alternate universe. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's a moment, like every time I catch a pair of sunglasses like, that have built-in strobe lights, I realize that I don't want them. I'm never gonna wear them. But here we are, using my wife's pregnant belly and our toddler to beg for a bedazzled plunger. <laughs> I'm not joking, that's what would have happened yesterday. So in the span, if you came with us to New Orleans, you went to parade, in the span of any given 10 minutes, you might see the 610 Stompers. It's an all-male dance crew that lives by the motto, ordinary men, extraordinary moves. You might see a high school marching band that is better than the one at whatever college you went to. <laughs> and you, you might see a celebrity like Spike Lee just alone for the ride. And that's just in the parade. And so it's safe to say that in New Orleans, Mardi Gras is a far cry from the Christian calendar that it originally kind of grew from. But I don't think anyone would call carnival season a dead ritual. There's a lot of activity going on. At the same time, one of the criticisms I've often heard from maybe Christians who walked away from the church or people who, young people who aren't Christians is that everything going on in the church, particularly in our Catholic city, is just dead ritual. That certainly can be the case. Like if there's hypocrisy present or the church has lost contact with these divine realities at the heart of their practice. But the answer for us as the, as the church it's not to just jettison all the ritual because cultures around you are just swirling with liturgy and ritual, whether or not you realize it. I mean, the vast majority of us are, those rituals are being mediated through the notifications on our phone. They tell us what to do and when to do it. And so the real question for us is whether or not we're gonna allow the right rituals to shape us, whether we're gonna allow the right liturgy to make us the Exodus shaped people. And so as we jump into the story of Exodus in chapters 11 and 12, we're going to be introduced to the Passover, the decisive salvation event from Egypt that will be memorialized as the most foundational ritual for God's people. And as we get into this text, I pray that we just see this one big idea. If you're a note taker, the Lord comes in judgment but he provides redemption through the Passover lamb. That the Lord comes in judgment, but he provides redemption through the Passover lamb. And we'll read the text as it comes to us. I've got the text divided up into three big scenes. Um, the first scene will be the final straw in Exodus 11, one through 10. The second scene is a new beginning, Exodus 12, one through 13. And the final scene, a regular remembrance. Exodus 12, 14 through 28. So the final straw, 
a new beginning and a regular remembrance. Um, Let's go to God one more time in prayer. Lord, I am a weak man and I need your help. Um, Lord, but you are good and you love your people. So I pray that you would do as as you promised and you would do your work and your people um, by your word and by the power of your spirit. Ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start reading the final straw in Exodus 11, one through 10. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was, a, was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the mill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so by the time we reach chapter 11 of Exodus, Pharaoh has crossed the point of no return. Um, despite nine signs or plagues. And the Lord's just repeated command, let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh just refuses to comply. And so this evil king who saw himself as divine, first it says his heart is hard. Then it says he hardened his own heart. And he does that time and time again he refused to acknowledge, refuses to acknowledge any power higher than himself. And so God hardens his heart. Like he gives him over to what he wants to do. He gives him over to his own sin and even strengthens his will to carry out those sinful desires. What a terrifying thought. That God would give you over to the very worst desires in your heart. And when we get this point, the last sign of darkness 
has just fallen. And that would have cut right to the heart of the Egyptian religion because Pharaoh was viewed as almost this incarnation of Ra, the sun god. And the Lord cut the lights off. And Pharaoh threatens Moses after that in Exodus 10, 28 and 29. He says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And this refusal to even hear the word of the Lord from Moses was the straw that broke the camel's back. And before Moses leaves, which is where we get in Exodus 11, he has one last message to deliver from Yahweh. And verses one and two allow us to eavesdrop, eavesdrop on this private conversation from the Lord to Moses. He tells Moses, this is gonna be the final sign. And after this demonstration of God's power, Pharaoh is not just gonna allow you to go three days out in the wilderness to worship the Lord. No, he's gonna force you completely out of Egypt. Complete and total liberation from Egypt. And just as the Lord had predicted in Exodus 3, 21, 22, Israel was about to plunder Egypt, not through military might, but just by going to ask your Egyptian neighbor. All the previous signs had accomplished their goal. The people of Egypt were growing to know the Lord. They even respected the people of Israel and they were beginning to know and fear this God. Some of these Egyptians might even be the part of the mixed multitude that leaves with Israel. They're like, I'm, I'm done with these gods because they can't protect us. And Moses has gone from like this refugee shepherd to a legitimate messenger of the Most High. But this last sign, this last plague will be more terrible than any of the others. Because at midnight, the Lord would sweep through Egypt and through the land and he would strike the firstborn male of every Egyptian household, both human and cattle. Wealth, class distinction would be no protection against the outstretched arm of the Lord. And the sorrow that came over Egypt would be greater than had ever fallen. God would bring justice for the Hebrew boys that were slaughtered in the Nile. And moreover, God is making good on a promise he made to Pharaoh in Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. And so Israel as, a, Israel as just a whole was God's firstborn son. Egypt had enslaved, oppressed, harmed them for centuries. And Pharaoh's hard heart revealed that they had no plans to stop. And despite all that, my heart shudders at this judgment. Don't we often find ourselves uncomfortable with divine justice? Like the death of so many just seems too harsh. And I think the same feeling often extends to our gut instinct about hell and the eternal judgment of sin. 
At the same time, we often experience a deep distrust of human justice. I mean, every time there's a really public trial, part of me just assumes that the person with more money is gonna lawyer up and they're gonna get away really regardless of guilt. And even if like the jury comes to the right verdict, I'm like the, ju- the sentencing might not be just. We don't trust authorities because so many of us have seen the sword of justice wielded unjustly. But I want us to even take some time to think about the contradiction between like the lines of thinking there. Like we rightly desire justice for wrongs to be right. But we question the reliability of human justice because we realize it's often wrong or infallible or fails to be just. And at the same time, we're uncomfortable with God directly bringing divine justice. And these contradictions, I think they reveal, at least in my own heart, that we only accept justice when it lines up with our instincts. Like we secretly, or even not so secretly, believe that if we were in charge, we would be the righteous judge the world needs. And I don't wanna minimize our uncomfortability with the Passover, but I do want us to caution us against the belief that we are either more just or more wise or more merciful than God, because we're not. We must trust the judge of all the earth to do what is just, to do what is right, and he will. And in this instance, the Lord is rushing to the aid of Israel after offering Egypt countless opportunities to repent. God will not let his people suffer indefinitely. And as I hear the stories of these missionaries, I hear the stories of these Christians that are, that are in very difficult context, that is good news. And this same theme is present in the New Testament. It's often helpful for us to see that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. In Revelation 15, 16, um, God pours out the seven bowl judgments on the world. And you go read them, they sound just like the plagues of Egypt. And in 16.6, it says that these plagues are being poured out on the world because the world has shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. And so then we we come to the, the altar of God and how do the martyred Christians and the mistreated Christians throughout all the ages respond to these judgments being poured out on the world? Revelation 16, seven says, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. We should take comfort in that. That on that last day, we won't say, no, I don't think you got that one right, God. No, he will do what is just. And so immediately after this news of God's judgment on the firstborn of Egypt, Verse seven tells us there will be no harm coming to Israel. But we aren't told how that distinction is gonna happen. Nevertheless, this final sign would be the total humiliation of Pharaoh because his own officials are gonna come before Moses, the refugee shepherd. And they would undermine Pharaoh and say, get out of here. They would learn that Pharaoh was no God. 
Pharaoh's heart was hard. He had hardened his heart. And so the Lord hardened his heart by giving him over to his worst desires. And in doing so, he was leading Pharaoh to his own destruction. But this destructive end for Pharaoh in Egypt would be a new beginning for Israel. So let's keep reading in Exodus 12 and see a new beginning. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments." I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This last sign is fundamentally different from all the ones before it. Because Israel isn't just automatically exempt. They had to act in faith and obedience in order to be saved. And through the blood of a lamb, God's people would be redeemed. And this event, this Passover, was going to completely reorient time from here on out the month of the Passover would be the beginning of the new year. And this is no throwaway detail. Egypt ran on a 10-day week, three 10-day weeks in a month. And the annual calendar revolved around the Nile and all their gods. And Israel had counted their days according to an Egyptian calendar for 430 years. But the Passover was a decisive break and a new beginning they would emerge from Egypt as a distinct people redeemed by their God. And this unusual story of new creation by atoning sacrifice would be the foundational story of salvation that formed their lives. 
just as Jesus' cross would become the unlikely door to new creation for us. And all the details of the Passover are significant. They're not just throwaway. I mean, try to put your sanctified imagination caps on and try to imagine like this everyday Israelite carrying out the Passover. Like the Passover was a family meal. If your family was too small, you invited a neighbor over. Each family was to take this unblemished one-year-old male lamb or goat. And so this was a suitable substitute for a firstborn son. This animal would be chosen on the 10th day of the month and then it lives with you for like four days. So it's like living in and around the house. And as the sun was setting on that 14th day of the month, they would slaughter the lamb and place some of its blood like on the door frame of the house. That night, the Lord would pass through. He would see this blood and judgment would be averted. I mean, the wages of sin have always been death. And Israel was not innocent. The blood of the lamb would provide ransom from death. And that very night, after the blood, while the blood was still in the door, they would have to eat the lamb. Now, this was a strange meal. Um, some of you guys may, may resonate with this. You know how Thanksgiving at your grandmother's said, hey, we're going to start eating at 12. You know that means like 2.30, 3. Like you show up at 11.30 and things are still in the oven. It's like, oh, four more casseroles got to go in. Well, nobody in their right mind during the time of the Bible would begin preparing dinner at twilight. Right? Meals took time to prepare. And any work would have to be done by candlelight. So when the sun went down, people typically went to sleep. So the Passover meal was a meal eaten three to four hours after their regular mealtime. And in eating this lamb, which was like a burnt offering roasted on the fire, the whole, the whole family was identifying with the firstborn son in their house because they as Israel were God's firstborn son. And that's not the only strange aspect of this midnight meal. They ate it fully packed, dressed and ready for travel. Now, I hate to continue talking about grandmothers, but like y'all may not have had a grandmother like mine, but you did not wear shoes inside of my granny Nelda's house. That, I, I grew up thinking that was the 11th commandment. Um, Mary Margaret's grandmother, very similar in, in, in this. Um, at her house, she has rugs on top of her rugs to keep like nasty son-in-laws like me from getting her house dirty. And if you go to like Middle Eastern or Eastern cultures now, you'll find that typically you take your shoes off when you go in somebody's house. It's disrespectful not to. But this meal, the Passover, was eaten with shoes on, belt fastened. Like you got your, your robes hiked up, ready to roll. You got your staff in your hand and it was eaten in a hurry. This is not a leisurely meal because in the morning they would leave Egypt. Any leftovers, they're gonna be burned because they believed that God would be the one who would provide and that his deliverance would be immediate. 
And the great significance of what's going on at the Passover finds an unlikely parallel within the book of Exodus. T.D. Alexander sees a lot of similarities between the Passover and the consecration of the priests in Exodus 29. So similarly to these doorposts being covered in blood in the Passover, the priests in Exodus 29 are actually sprinkled with blood themselves. The lamb is eaten in the house and nobody goes out the whole night. Well, the priests eat their ram with unleavened bread in the courtyard of the temple or the tabernacle. If there's any food left over in the morning, it's burned. And they stay in the tabernacle all night long. And all these common elements, I think, reveal what's going on at the Passover. That the Israelites are taking their first step into their new identity. They were slaves of Pharaoh, but when they emerge in the morning, they are starting to become the holy priests of God who serve him and not Pharaoh. Their fundamental status is changing. And this would have been done every year in the future. Every time this happened, an Israelite family was participating in the Passover. I mean, they're ritually reenacting their ransom from death and their redemption from bondage. And my friends, that is exactly why the disciples probably thought Jesus was off his rocker at the Last Supper. I mean, he hijacks the Passover meal and makes it about himself. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? He takes the unleavened bread and says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Takes the wine, drink of it. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of many sins. Because on the cross, Jesus became our Passover lamb. And he was far more than just an unblemished one-year-old lamb who lived with us for a couple days. No, he was the sinless son of God made flesh who walked this earth for 30 years. And the only suitable substitute and sacrifice that would ransom us from death and redeem us from sin slavery. And it's through his death that we are made holy and we're set apart to serve our God as a royal priesthood. And whenever we partake of our Passover lamb by faith, we do it with our walking shoes on, ready to get out of Egypt as soon as possible. We don't linger. We take up our crosses and follow him to the promised land. Picking up on Passover language, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, because that couldn't buy you freedom, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And it's that precious blood that Christians have been singing about for centuries. What can wash away my sins 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We don't just sing about ourselves, we sing to invite others. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? I mean, I could keep going all day, but every Christian can gladly sing. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood. And I know it was the blood for me. One day when I was lost, he died upon a cross. And I know it was the blood for me. And so the question for you and I this morning is really simple. Is the blood of Jesus on your door? Like on the last day when God comes to judge with perfect judgment, what will distinguish you from every other sinful human being? Like, will it be your good works? Like your church attendance, your seminary degree? Because if justice for your sins means eternal death, what is your only hope? But if faith in Jesus means trusting all of Jesus and none of yourself, then the Passover paints a beautiful picture. Because it's not by your might that you are saved, but by the blood of the lamb. It is hard to flex your righteousness when all you have is a blood-soaked strand of hyssop and you're just wiping it on the door. And hear me, no stain is too deep for the blood of Christ to wash you white as snow. In fact, there are the parts of your life that you're most ashamed of are exactly the reason that Christ died. And nobody had to twist his arm to do it. Like he loves you. I've only been pastoring for like three years now. But how important is it for us to tell one another, hey, brother, sister, Jesus loves you. Dane Ortland and Gentle and Lowly, reading that book, I didn't even finish the whole thing because I was like, this is too heavy. This is like, I got to sit this thing down. But there's a quote from that book that has been just burned into my soul. The things about you that make you cringe most Make him hug hardest. Let neither pride nor shame keep you from trusting Jesus today. Those are just two roads that lead to the same destination. Paint the blood of Jesus on your door, strap on those sandals and leave Egypt. Now, most of us believe that great truth. You also know that we forget that truth and we drift. So let's keep reading and see how the Lord sets up a regular remembrance of this new beginning. 
Exodus 12, 14 through 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses, out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. On the first, in the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of, the Israels, of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children, pay attention, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And so it becomes really clear that although this passage is about the first Passover, this is meant to be read as instructions for all the future Passovers. And so the Passover and this festival of unleavened bread this week after allowed Israel to rehearse this fundamental salvation story just on an annual basis. The Passover was so important to Israelite life that Numbers 9 instructs people, hey, if you missed the Passover because you were traveling or because you were unclean, you do it the second month of the year. You do a makeup Passover. And this Passover would lead directly into this festival of unleavened bread. And so for the first days after, seven days after the Passover, the family who ate the lamb would eat only unleavened bread to remember their great urgency in leaving Egypt. Now, leaven, if you didn't know, is just this bacterial rising agent that causes bread to be soft, fluffy, and delicious. 
Generally, baker would prepare like the flour and the ingredients the night before, add the starter dough that is already leavened and just mix a little bit in um, and let it sit overnight. Overnight, that, that whole loaf, that, all, that whole lump of dough um, would be leavened because the bacteria multiplies so quickly. But eating unleavened bread reminded Israel that they were leaving in the morning and they did not have time to wait. There was no time to do that. The flat cakes that they would have eaten with their Passover lamb were also covered in these bitter herbs to remind them that slavery in Egypt was bitter. And the flat bread eaten the rest of the week would remind, it was like snack food for the road. And any Israelite who refused to participate in the festival of unleavened bread was cut off from Israel in verse 15. Now this language of being cut off is super strong. Like the law uses this for people who like are disobeying in high-handed ways, in ways that basically constitute blasphemy. It could even mean the death penalty. To eat unleavened bread during the festival though was to refuse to participate in the exodus. And refusing to participate in the exodus for your everyday Israelite was forgetting the rock from which you were cut. The traditional Jewish liturgy read even today whenever um, the Passover is carried out includes this line. In every generation, one ought to regard himself as though he had personally come out of Egypt. That's what, the, that's what this remembrance did. Uh, Michael Morales, not to be confused with Miles Morales, who my sons loves, um, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread was a yearly reminder that the Exodus path back to abundant life, it's not accomplished by just the momentary crossing of a border. No, the Exodus is a continual leaving. The Exodus was a lifelong process of moving from exile and into God's presence. Paul might say it this way. Well, if the blood of the lamb is on our door, should we remain in Egypt so that redemption may abound? No. And so as we consider Christ, our Passover lamb, the festival of the unleavened bread reminds us of the urgency of his new exodus brought about by his cross and his empty tomb. And it's no less urgent than the first. It's the opposite of what Lot did with Sodom. Lingering, hanging around. Now we are called to run and not look back. Jesus warned his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod because he knows that the temptations of the world and religious hypocrisy can slip in quietly and corrupt our faith. In the context of the of the Corinthian church and church discipline, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival 
not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so for us to be an Exodus-shaped people, we must remove the leaven and leave Egypt. Like our growth and sanctification, both individually and corporately, it's just a deepening of our Exodus. It's continually leaving. And what's happening as we, become, as we continually deepen our Exodus is we're becoming the kind of people who are fit to live in the promised land fit to live in this new creation that's coming. I mean, that's the fruits of the Spirit. When you show love, joy, peace, it's not just you're becoming a better person. You're becoming a person fit for heaven. And here's the good news. God has already made you a new unleavened batch. You are holy and free because of the blood of the Lamb. So clean out the old leaven. Like, get out of the house. Don't play with sin. Put it to death. Take it off. Flee from it. All the analogies the Bible uses. Now, we might know these things in our brains, but we have gospel amnesia. And we need to be reminded of this on a regular basis. I mean, Jesus knows us. What's he say? Do this in remembrance of me as he takes the bread and the wine. He knows that sometimes we will struggle to believe the good news. He knows that on some Sundays, and this might have been one for you, you walk into the gathering with Satan and your own conscience just coming at you. He knows that on some days you will be so tired from suffering and you won't have any tears left. He knows that on some days You'll come into church and you won't even have the mental capacity to listen to a sermon. And he knows that on some days you will just want to quit. Our ears and our eyes, they're prone to dart from the gospel. But the Lord's Supper puts it on our tongue. He allows us to touch, to feel to taste and even chew on spiritual realities through this ordinance. And this ritual shapes and it molds us. Each week we come from all sorts of directions to the table, but we all come as beggars. And when we come, his mercy is not rationed. If you come to the table thinking, look at me. I shared the gospel three times this week and I hit my devotions every day. What does the Lord's Supper tell you? The body of Christ broken for you. If you come in and I sinned this week, I'm making this terrible mess out of my life. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Oh, but I feel like Ezekiel's dry bones just baking in the desert sun the body of Christ broken for you. But God, I'm doubting your goodness. And if, to be honest, I even feel guilty about doubting the blood of Christ shed for you. Man, if the Lord's Supper is a dead ritual, it's our hearts that are dead. They're to blame because Jesus is very much alive. And every time we take the supper, we look back, we look around 
and we look ahead. We look back to the cross and the empty tomb and we see the great price of our salvation and the great assurance that one day it will be complete. We proclaim his death on our behalf and we're connected to that very first meal with the disciples the night before he died. We look around. Because if you remember what I said, the Passover is a family meal. Well, Jesus flips the script and eats it with his disciples, his new family. And so each time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Christ didn't just die for you. He died for the person ahead of you and behind of you in line. And this is where the Lord's Supper is so helpful because it simultaneously shrinks your world and expands it. It shrinks your world because, I mean, every day we are being pulled in a bazillion different directions. Every time you pick up your phone and you start scrolling, people all over the world whom you've never met are calling you to be concerned about things that you didn't even know existed. And the Lord's Supper is just this weekly reminder that God didn't intend you to save the world. That's his job. And the supper is a family meal that shrinks your world and reminds you that your prim- these are the primary relationships in your lives. This is what God's put before you. Care for them, love them because Jesus died for them. At the same time, the Lord's Supper expands our world. I mean, this weekend feels like that as we hear about all the things going on, but God's kingdom is bigger than Emmanuel Baptist. It's bigger than Harvest Church. It's bigger than the Emmanuel Network. And for 2000 years, people have been taking this meal and Lord willing, billions more will in the years to come. I mean, this very week, there are Christians in India, Germany, Peru, Iran, Kenya, who will take the Lord's Supper. Those are our brothers and sisters. We're in the same family. But we don't just look back. We don't just look around. We look ahead and we have hope. We don't just proclaim the Lord's death. What does the scripture say? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whew. And when he comes, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. And every week when we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that each one of us will one day sit down at a table and feast with King Jesus. This is no dead ritual. And when our children, when our unbelieving neighbors, maybe you're a visitor here this morning, ask, what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper? I mean, it's teeing it up. It is the Lord's Supper. For Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and everyone who places their faith in him will be saved. And believe me, people will ask questions. We got this group of like eight like siblings that comes to our church. Um, They range from like 16 to like five now. And so they'll roll into church. Um, One of the first times they came, one of these kids asked somebody who's sitting by them, is that real blood? Because that would be weird. But what did I just walk into? (laughs) But what a perfect opportunity to, to share the gospel with those in our midst just trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And so when somebody asks, they start talking about blood, you're like, no, it's not real blood. But your sin was so serious that Jesus had to die for it. 
And Jesus loves you so much that he did so freely. And so in order for us to become an Exodus-shaped people, we need to land exactly where Israel does at the end of verse 27. We need to bow our heads and worship. We need to be on our faces. We must obey the word of the Lord just like they did because they did and this Passover deliverance would forever shape their lives. And for us, the cross of Jesus has just become this reorienting event in our lives. His death is the beginning of our way home to God. And it's this story of redemption that has become the foundational salvation story that's shaping our lives. What a strange and glorious story. What is required to rescue someone from slavery and death? What is necessary to humiliate the idols of Egypt and Pharaoh, their serpent king? And we would say to be an Exodus-shaped person is to believe that escape from the land of death and slavery requires death in one's place. We would say that to be an Exodus-shaped person is to believe that the great dragon has been defeated by the lamb who was slain. And we too will overcome by the power of his blood and the word of our testimonies. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have sent Jesus, our great Passover lamb. Help us to trust him all the more and help us to flee Egypt. It's in his name we pray, amen.